The first one is Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. So I'll just give you a moment to find that in your Bibles. If you've got the black church Bibles that you grab from the front, it is on page 285. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when, you, when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. But those who hate him, will, he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. Our next reading, we skip ahead to Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 10 to 18. When you march up to attack a city, make its people an offer of peace. If they accept and open their gates, all the people in it shall be subject to forced labour and shall work for you. If they refuse to make peace and they engage you in battle, lay siege to that city. When the Lord your God delivers it into your hand, put, the, put to the sword all the men in it. As for the women, the children, the livestock and everything else in the city, you may take these as plunder for yourselves and you may use the plunder the Lord your God gives you from your enemies. This is how you are to treat all the cities that are, that are at a distance from you and do not belong to the nations nearby. However, in the cities of the nations that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the, all the detestable things they do in worshipping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. Okay, and our last reading is in Joshua chapter 11, verses 12 to 20. Joshua took all these royal cities and their kings and put them to the sword. He totally destroyed them, as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded. Yet Israel did not burn any of the cities built on their mounds, except Hazor, which Joshua burned. 
The Israelites carried off for themselves all the plunder and livestock of these cities, but all the people they put to the sword until they completely destroyed them, not sparing anyone that breathed. As the Lord commanded his servant Moses, so Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua did it. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. So Joshua took this entire land, the hill country, all the Negev, the whole region of Goshen, the western foothills, the Arabah, and the mountains of Israel with their foothills, from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, to Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. He captured all their kings and put them to death. Joshua waged war against all these kings for a long time. Except for the Hivites living in Gibeon, not one city made a treaty of peace with the Israelites, who took them all in battle. For it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel, so that he might destroy them totally, exterminating them without mercy, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Okay, let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, you call us to always be ready to give an answer for the reason for the hope we have. And we know that in Australia today, your character is questionable in the eyes of many people. And so they may call you immoral. Our loving Father, this particular issue is a big one. So we ask that you'd help us to think clearly, help us to see what we need to see, um, help us to not be quick to jump to um, untrue conclusions. Help us to clarify how we can answer. And if we ourselves have questions, please may you bring the truth out today. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so over January, we are looking at some of the objections that people have to the God of the Bible. Last week, we looked at the question, is God anti-science? Next week, we'll be looking at the <laughs> tricky question of, does God promote domestic violence through the Bible's teaching on male headship? Today, we come to the most difficult problem of the Old Testament. God's command for the Israelites to undertake holy war against the Canaanites. This is a huge issue for anyone reading the Bible, whether you're Christian or not. Because to us living where we do now, it sounds very similar to Islamic jihad. Deuteronomy 7, when the Lord your God brings you into the land you're entering to possess and drives you out before many nations, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them, show them no mercy. It's very difficult to read that without wincing. And it raises disturbing questions. How could a God of love and compassion ever issue such a decree? What's going on? I mean, what's that say about him, that he said that? And isn't that the precise justification that led to atrocities committed throughout Christian history? Think of the Crusades, for example. This issue, more than any other, seems to place Christi Christianity on par with the unsavorable aspects of Islam. And yet, it's there in our Bibles. It happened. 
So, if this issue came up in conversation, when you were having a coffee with someone, what would you say? Well, if you're stuck, I want us to pretend that we're having a coffee together. Okay, so how do we make sense of this supposed holy war in the Bible? We have our questions, they are there on your outlines, and I'll be working through them. The first question is, is this God's normal practice? That is, is this a precedent for ongoing holy wars? Well, the answer, thankfully, is no. Why not? Because this was a unique moment in the history of God's dealing with his people. Here were Abraham's descendants taking possession of the land that God had promised to Abraham 500 years earlier. This was the moment when God came good on his promise. The Israelites themselves had been brutally mistreated for 400 years and God, of course, had rescued them. That's the story of the Exodus. And finally, God gives them the command to march in and take possession of the promised land. Now, he needed to give this command because, as you see from the map there, the land was inhabited. Other people lived there. Understandably, they weren't completely happy just to hand over their land to new inhabitants. Now, of course, this raises a question about fairness. How could this be fair that God does this? We will address that, but before we do, we want to stick to the command and ask, is it normal? No, because it's a very limited command. It was never to be applied more broadly to the neighboring countries. Israel was never to initiate war with the neighboring countries with a view to land grabbing, never to conquer just for the sake of empire building. This is in marked contrast to all of the other um, countries and empires in the ancient Near East um, when they just regarded the neighboring countries as a, as a free-for-all. Israel were to limit themselves in their conquest to the land that God promised Abraham. No more. Just that. So the command was limited in scope and it was also limited in time. It was never repeated to later generations of Israelites. It only applied to that generation of Israelites under Joshua. And so in the New Testament times, for example, we see Peter, uh, Jesus telling Peter, put your sword away. We see Jesus answering Pilate about why his followers didn't fight for him. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. It just isn't. This, uh, if you want to compare Christianity with Islam on this, this is so different to Islamic Jihad, where the commands in the Quran are neither limited in time because they carry an ongoing force for Muslims today, nor are they limited in scope because Islam's goal is to set up a worldwide theocracy where the whole world is Islamic. That is what they're pushing for. So this command to take the land was limited in time, it was limited in scope, at a unique moment in Israel's history. What that means is that it can never be taken to have an ongoing force uh, for how God's people should respond today. It was not the norm for God. It was unusual. It was not the norm for his people. Let me now focus on the Canaanite question. Isn't what God ordered completely unfair and wrong? Did the Canaanites deserve what God 
ordered upon them? This is a moral question. And that is exactly how God sees it as well. Because go back 470 years to God's original promise to Abraham and we see uh, God telling Abraham the land wasn't to be his immediately but his descendants would have to be first enslaved and mistreated for 400 years and only then were they enabled to come to the land. Why? In yellow, because the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. That is, at that point in time when the Lord spoke to Abraham, it would have been immoral at that point for God to have driven the inhabitants out of the land because their sin had not yet reached sufficient seriousness, sufficient height for exclusion from the land to be a justifiable punishment. It would take almost 500 years to get to that point. And only then does the Lord act. We see it again in Moses' final words to the Israelites just before the conquest. He says, after the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, don't, don't say that, he says. He said, it's on the account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. Moses is very clear. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going to take possession of their land, but on account of their wickedness, the wickedness of these nations, that the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what this means is that if our view of the Canaanites as a people was of an innocent, peace-loving people sitting there, you know, minding their own business, um, you know, a quite wholesome society, we would be thoroughly mistaken. According to the Lord, they were wicked. And we say, yes, okay, but surely we're all wicked, aren't we? You know, doctrine of sin. Um, were they that wicked to deserve to be slaughtered? I want to take, I'll explain this by taking a more recent example. Uh, ten years ago, 2010, Chris Rogers, a BBC journalist, filed an article with the BBC about reports of child sacrifice in Uganda, in Kampala. In, 20, in 2008 and 2009, the Ugandan police investigated 54 alleged ritual murders of children by witch doctors in that country. Teachers and parents in that country had to keep constant watch on the kids as they walked to and from school. The issue became so widespread that Ugandan police established a special anti-human sacrifice task force. I want you to imagine for a moment that this practice had become so common that the police didn't investigate it, they accepted it. More than that, they supported it. Imagine the horror of parents who would willingly sacrifice their children to the spirits to buy good luck for their family. Welcome to the land of Canaan. Here is a polite picture of the Canaanite god Molech and of an adult holding up a child for sacrifice. To obtain Molech's blessing, you'd sacrifice, and the greater the sacrifice, the greater the blessing, of course. So if things got really desperate, you'd sacrifice that which was most important to you, your child, and so this hollow bronze statue would be heated, a fire lit within, 
and a parent would place a child in Moloch's red-hot hands. Can you believe it? It's, it's too appalling to even contemplate. And yet, it was a widespread practice throughout Canaan, something so abhorrent to the Lord that he says the thought hadn't even entered his mind that people would be so depraved as to do that. But the depravity, of course, went deeper still. The gods the Canaanites worshipped engaged in sexual sin, the Canaanite gods, right? So bestiality, homosexual sex, rape, incest. That meant to worship the gods at their temples, the people did the same. And that was at the top end of society, and so, of course, the practices filtered down into village and home life as well. It was a living hell. So we would be naive to think that the Canaanite religion was all sunshine and roses. It was appalling. Can you see why it was exactly the right moral thing for the Lord to step in and do something? That it was because God cared enough that he used the Israelites as an agent of judgment. It wasn't because the Canaanites happened to have a different religion. It was because their religion profoundly perverted their moral core. If you go to a passage like Amos chapters one and two, we see that the reasons why God judges other nations aside from Israel are not because they worship other gods, that's not the reason that's given, it's because their worship of their own gods makes them so appallingly immoral. In the case of the Canaanites in Leviticus 18, God said their sexual perversion and child sacrifices had defiled the land and so defiled the land that the land would spit them out. Now, third question. Uh, sorry, that's the bit I quoted is in the bit after that quote. Yeah. Third question. Richard Dawkins called the slaughter of the Canaanites genocide and ethnic cleansing. Is that right? Um, I'm 49. I can still remember the terrible genocide in Rwanda in 1994. I can remember the ethnic cleansing that Slobodan Milosevic ordered of Bosnian Muslims in 1995. Both ethnic cleansing and genocide are race-related crimes where slaughter is fueled by racial hatred. Is the slaughter of the Canaanites in the same category? No, it isn't. Because in Leviticus 18, God warns the Israelites that he would apply exactly the same standards to them. If they followed the Canaanites in their practices and so defiled the land, they too, not just the Canaanites, but they too would be vomited out of the land. And terribly, that is in fact exactly what happened later on, the unthinkable. Israel followed the Canaanites, which meant she sacrificed her children in the fire to Molech. This was abhorrent to the Lord and he judged her and removed her from the land just as he had done with the Canaanites. So the point is that neither the Canaanites nor the Israelites, you see, had inherent dibs on the land. It wasn't theirs by right. The land was a gift from God, first to one, then to the other. That gift became forfeited first by one and then the other. And that shows that the judgment on the Canaanites wasn't because God was racist against Canaanites or anyone else for that matter. Because the real truth 
is that the God of the Old Testament is actually for the nations, not against them. Go back to the founding promise that the Lord made to Abraham. In the same breath as promising that he would bless Abraham, he explains his goal that through Abraham, all the nations would come to be blessed. And so yes, in the Bible, God is pro-Abraham and therefore pro-Israel, but he is that for the sake of the nations. The, The God of the Bible has a heart for the nations. Jesus died for the sins of the world, not just for Israel. Uh, The God of the Bible is not innately against those who aren't Jewish. And we see it. Um, God blesses all those who themselves bless the descendants of Abraham. We think in the Old Testament story, who can you think of? Melchizedek, okay, who lived in Jerusalem before it became uh, Jewish. Uh, Zipporah the Midianite, who became Moses' wife, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, who was a Midianite priest. Um, You have Rahab, a a prostitute, who was a Canaanite woman. Ruth, who was a Moabitess. Naaman, who was a Syrian army commander. You have Uriah the Hittite. These are only a few of the foreigners who were blessed by turning to the God of Abraham. But of course, there were many, many more people than that. How do we know? Because when the Israelites left Egypt... Many foreigners attached themselves to the Hebrew people and also left with them. And these people were not overlooked by God. He includes them in the laws that he gives to um, his people. You know, that, that is, uh, his people were not to be mistreated. Um, sorry, sorry, the foreigners were not to be mistreated because they were non-Israelite. Why? Because you Israelites, you were once aliens. You were foreigners in Egypt. God is not anti-racist, sorry, God is not racist, he's not anti-Gentile. This means that whatever the conquest of Canaan was, it wasn't ethnic cleansing, just for the sake of ethnic cleansing. So if it wasn't conducted out of race hatred, was it genocide? Genocide is the wiping out of a people. Because this is really the objectionable part, the repeated boast that the Canaanites were totally and utterly destroyed with no one spared. That sounds very much like genocide, doesn't it? And now we have to ask, what's really meant by the phrase totally destroyed? You would think totally destroyed means totally destroyed. Does those words totally destroyed mean total destruction? I think not. Because if you do a close reading of the Bible, you will discover some things. At the end of the book of Joshua, chapter 23, verses 12, 12 and 13, Joshua speaks of the Canaanite survivors. What? There must have been many Canaanite survivors because he warns Israel from allying with them and from intermarrying with them and of them still needing to be driven out. Well, if all of them were wiped out, why the need for these warnings? In fact, in the first verse of the book of Judges, which is the very next verse after the one we just read in the next book, um, we see that the Canaanites are a fighting force. So this brings us to the fourth question. How complete was the slaughter? Because on the lips of both Moses and Joshua, numerous times we hear them saying that they completely destroyed everything in the towns, men and women and children, they left no survivors, Joshua 6, Joshua 8, Deuteronomy 2, Deuteronomy 3. These are statements we recoil from. 
you know, their words of bravado, boasting in their slaughter and in victory, to which I say, exactly, they are exactly that. They are words of bravado. And again, it helps us to understand the times of the ancient Near East. Archaeologists have uncovered, uncovered similar boasts of total annihilation from Egyptian, Hittite, Moabite and Assyrian army commanders. And in every case, of course, they know that the enemy wasn't totally annihilated because those nations went on to survive. But we say, we say surely the word of God, you know, is the accurate word of God. This is in the Bible, right? Yes, but we need to understand the meaning of that which is written. What do those words total, totally destroyed mean? At, what did they mean at the time? In those days, when the news of a military victory announced everyone was killed, no one was left alive, that, of course, may have been true for the battlefield or the garrison or the citadel which was attacked, but it almost certainly wasn't true of the entire population of the women and children and other men who had fled to the hills or the caves. The cities of Ai and Jericho are a case in point. Archaeologists have concluded that these were garrisons, they were citadels, they were walled cities to be used as fortresses for the army during times of war. They are filled with soldiers, but almost certainly not with women and children. You say, hang on, but what about Rahab, right? She was there in Jericho, but she was a prostitute. Okay. Um, when we read everyone was killed, men, women and children, most likely this was a chest-thumping, testosterone-laden way of saying, we totally smashed them. It doesn't necessarily mean that all the women and the children of that race were killed. Because if all the women and children were always killed, why would God have written laws which protected the rights of women who were captured during times of war? That's included in Israel's law. This means that yes, the Israelites did thrash the Canaanites, but no, the Canaanites were not completely annihilated. No, the women and children weren't necessarily massacred. If you're in doubt, the final proof of this is in the Bible itself, that when God directs the Israelites to conquer the land, he speaks of them driving out the nations, not slaughtering, upheaving them, yes, dispossessing them of their land, yes, moving them beyond Canaan's borders, yes, driving them out, but not wholesale slaughter. So when you put all of this together, the picture we have of Israel's conquest of the land is that the Canaanite armies were defeated. Many of the Canaanites themselves were pushed out of their land, but also that many continued to live in their land and marry into Israel and then lead them astray, which brings us to the question of why. Why did God command this in the first place? What's the goal? Well, the reason why the Lord ordered the destruction of the Canaanites was twofold. Number one, judgment on the Canaanites because of their wickedness, and we've heard that. But also, God wanted the Canaanite religion stamped out. He wasn't just happy for that to continue on. Why not? Because he knew how bad the hearts of his own people were. <laughs> he knew how deeply idolatrous they were. He knew that they were like one of those shopping trolleys that just bends the wrong way. You know, you, it's meant to go in one direction, but it just veers off course. He knew, he knew that the hearts of his people were like that and therefore easily led astray. Um, <clears throat> okay. 
Um, and he was right. Who'd have thought that they would have become so depraved as to copy the Canaanites and in the end sacrifice their children to Moloch down the track? And they did it. The Lord was right to have this concern. It would have been good for Canaanite religion to be stamped out. Well, are we any different? Of course we don't do child sacrifice, right? Just think about South Australia. Think about how morally we are at a totally different position than we were 20 years ago. About what was accepted as normal. Okay, so last year we had a push in the parliament to totally decriminalise every aspect of prostitution and to allow prostitutes to procure their services at any point, anywhere, any street, outside of school, nowhere, you know, anywhere. Uh, this was voted down in the end because largely Christians got up and spoke and actually they got some ex-prostitutes and wheeled them before the politicians and said, listen to them, they don't think it's a good idea. And they went, oh, really? We now, of course, have same-sex marriage and I know there are many people in this room who will say, uh, but I'm supportive. Okay. I want to point out that this was not the moral framework that people operated in even only 20 years ago. So our moral compass has shifted as a community in that time, right? What of child sacrifice? Of course we'd never, you know. Think for a moment how culturally acceptable it's, come, it's become to kill our children through legalised abortions. Now I know I am treading on ground that no one treads on. But it's on topic, isn't it? In 2019, Australians killed 80,000 of our innocent children in this way. That represents one quarter of all the babies born in Australia last year, one quarter. In the US, since 1973, when abortion was legalised, the number of American babies aborted legally now stands at 61 million. Across the world in the last 40 years, it's 1.5 billion. And they are only the abortions conducted in clinics. Could we believe that a loving God who valued human life would just let a society kill its children without ever saying enough's enough and ending the practice? Thankfully, that God doesn't exist because the God who is real, the God who is true, the loving God who cares, he will step in and say enough's enough. And he brought judgment on the Canaanites through Joshua. Just as surely as he will say one day, enough's enough, and he will judge the nations of the world. Many Christians have a hard time believing this. It's interesting, isn't it? Muslims don't have a hard time believing this. What's our issue? Was the Canaanite, the slaughter of the Canaanites, in one sense a, a jihad? In one sense it was a holy war. Though we're not comparing apples with apples if you want to compare biblical practice with Islamic practice. The conquest of Canaan was limited to a land area about half the size of Tasmania for one generation only, and that's it. No more. In contrast, Islamic Jihad 
has all of the world's territories and governments within its sights, and its force remains uh, until domination is achieved. That is the force of the command. We say, hang on, it's easy to throw stones at other people. What about the Crusades? Okay, now I preached at nine, and um, Simon Bell, who teaches Spanish and knows Spanish history, came up and had a word to me afterwards about this. Uh, his point was, um, the initial Crusades were done to protect Christian pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem, who were getting murdered along the way and had been for centuries. Um, of course, the Crusades went on for 400 years and different popes had different reasons for sending them and they weren't all good. But we do need to say that the Crusades was largely a pushback of a military operation of Islam to take over the world. And the Ottoman Hungarian Empire was knocking on the doors of northern Spain into France, Venice at the time. And it was a pushback because of that. However, let me say also, the Crusades of the 11th and 12th centuries were neither commanded by God nor were they sanctioned by Christ. Search the Bible, you cannot find any justification really in there unless you rip uh, the slaughter of the Canaanites out and then apply it. The one conquest commanded by God of Canaan was never meant to be repeated, it was never meant to become a precedent for the future. That stands in marked contrast to what we find in the Quran, to the doctrine of Islamic Jihad, which is not only commanded in the Quran, but in fact modeled by its founder, Muhammad. Muhammad fought in some 60 military missions in his lifetime. Uh, his life stands in direct contrast to Jesus, who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Not a war stallion, but a donkey. There's more to be said on this, of course, and I don't want you to hear me wrong. I am not saying all Muslims are jihadists. I am not. Far from it. Most Muslims, thankfully, are very peace-loving. Most Muslims, in fact, haven't read the Quran. Uh, most Muslims don't know Arabic. <laughs> That's why they haven't read it. Uh, most Muslims are peace-loving. Uh, I have Muslims whom I count as my friends. But just because the majority of Muslims are peace-loving, it does not therefore follow that Islam as it's taught in the Quran, is necessarily a religion of peace. Because yes, you'll, you'll hear, you'll hear um, Islamic academics speaking on the radio about this, ah, but there's verses in the Quran which speak of tolerance and of peace. That is true. Uh, that is an early teaching in the Quran, and it's rendered obsolete by later more authoritative commands to take up the sword against the unbeliever. Um, and Muhammad himself said this. So in the Quran, there is a principle of Quranic interpretation called the principle of abrogation. Essentially what that means is that earlier texts are um, rendered obsolete by later texts which are regarded as more authoritative. And the Quran traces um, uh, Muhammad's path from Mecca to Medina, Mecca where he began as a minority and it was peaceful, and then as he became more militant and moved to Medina. Um, that's where you get the jihad statements. But they're later ones, and they um, render the earlier ones obsolete. This is a contrast to Jesus, of course, who came later, didn't he, in the Bible, after the slaughter in the Canaanites, right? 
And Jesus, when he came, he told his followers to put down their weapons, not to take them up. Jesus himself never conquered anyone with force. He said his fight was not with, well, sorry, the apostles, his, his followers say his, their fight was not never with flesh and blood, but with spiritual forces of Satan and sin and death and the demonic realm. So yes, he was engaged in a war, but it wasn't flesh and blood. Okay, that's a lot to take in. <laughs> Before we leave, what concluding realizations can we draw from the Bible's so-called holy war? That is, it's there in the Bible, what's the application for us? I think I want to say two things. The first is the realization that one day the Lord will judge human wickedness. Now you might say, yes, we've been waiting a long time. I'd like to point out the Lord waited a very long time before judging the Canaanites for their wickedness, but he did it. It happened. And so if we should learn anything from the slaughter of the Canaanites, it is this, that there will come a day when the Lord will care enough to say, enough. Human wickedness has gone on enough. Time out. Judgment, you see, is not just an Old Testament idea. In fact, Jesus spoke more about the coming judgment than anyone else in the Bible. And no wonder, because he'll be the judge, did you realize? 2 Thessalonians chapter one, God is just. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. It's in the New Testament. It will happen. Now, it will not do to say to ourselves, God loves the world, he'll just forgive everyone. You see, what do you do with passages like that which speak of the day of judgment? We, we, we anaesthetize, we desensitize ourselves, and we say we believe in a God of compassion, of deep love, which is true, but we misunderstand his love. Go to the core verse, John 3.16, right? The one you all know. What does it say? It says, yes, God does love the world, that's true. He loved it so that he gave his one and only son. Why? So that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. It doesn't say God loves the world so he'll forgive everyone. Because what's the default that's assumed in that verse? If you don't believe, you'll perish, right? And that's the second point to make. God's love for the world is expressed not in his wholesale forgiveness of everyone regardless of their attitude to him or what God they serve, God's wholesale love for the world exists in this, that he gave his son to provide a way of salvation for everyone who will turn to him and believe. And so that is the call to every one of us this morning, to understand his love rightly, to turn from our wickedness and rebellion and sin and to come to Christ, lest we perish which is certainly what will happen unless people repent. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, I don't want to believe you. Look at the slaughter of the Canaanites. Draw your own conclusion. Father in heaven.
we pray that we would take seriously that which happened to this people. And we would not be so blind as to think it would not happen to us. We have huge issues which we ourselves buy into and are culpable of. And even if we haven't done them ourselves, we acquiesce in our heads and just tolerate them. Our moral compass is askew. Have mercy on us. And thank you that in your love you have provided a way out. Jesus, who died for us. And so we believe in him and ask that you'd help him to reform our lives. Amen.